Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18. I'm Charlie Walters. If you've lived on Nantucket in the last few years, you've probably heard of a new organization called Acclimate, which came into being in 2019. I'm going to read their mission statement. Acclimate is a collaborative, supporting innovative and holistic climate change strategies for the Nantucket community and beyond. I'm pleased to have with me in the studio today the chair of Acclimate, Will Kinsella. Will, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate your having me here. Thanks for doing this. I've read the mission statement, but why don't you expand on that and tell us what Acclimate does? Sure. Uh, so Acclimate is a public-private partnership uh, promoting coastal resilience and climate change communication and education. Uh, the organization uh, came about after the Coastal Resilience Plan uh, mitigate hazard mitigation plan in 2019. Uh, there was a conference called the Keeping History Above Water um, that discussed a lot of the climate change and coastal resilience issues facing Nantucket and communities uh, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And one of the uh, larger issues on Nantucket is that we didn't have a single umbrella organization to uh, to communicate some of the issues and missions that individual organizations were pursuing on their own. Um, so the idea was that we would have a single kind of clearinghouse for climate change, coastal resilience uh, information on Nantucket. And uh, it, it grew from four original partners. Uh, it was the Osceola Foundation, the Conservation Foundation, Mariah Mitchell Association, and uh, Preservation Institute of Nantucket. And uh, within, within a year or so, grew to about 18 partners. Um, the organization's very loosely governed, so there's, there's no formal leadership structure. Um, it is a roundtable collaborative that allows for leadership opportunities for any individual organization to pursue an issue area that's more in line with their specific missions that might have some overlap with the overarching mission that you've read about um, acclimate essentially collaborating and coordinating uh, holistic approaches to coastal resilience and climate change. A couple of things. Uh, the coastal resilience plan that you just referenced a moment ago, that's something that the town oversaw, for lack of a better word. And if I'm not mistaken, that is uh, accessible at the town website. It is. So the, uh, the coastal resilience plan was, uh, was passed last November. It was, it was finalized by the Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee last November. The select board adopted it in January of this year. Um, the, the, the plan itself uh, came about with, uh, as a result of the hazard mitigation plan, which was kind of the overarching look at what are the greatest threats to Nantucket. And those might be, you know, uh, besides uh, sea level rise uh, and storms, uh, extreme weather events, they might include security threats, terrorism, uh, food supply shortages. Um, and one of the, the premier problems that's facing Nantucket is uh, coastal resilience. Uh, so the next step after the hazard mitigation plan was to um, find a consultant, and that consultant was Arcadis, that developed in, with, after a couple charrettes uh, at the coastal resilience plan. This was over the course of, I think, a year or two. Um, so it was a long process. Um, it was a very in-depth look at 
what the issues were on Nantucket, what our priorities were. Um, the hazard mitigation was looking, or I'm sorry, the Coastal Resilience Plan was looking at um, short-term, medium-term, long-term scenarios, and then they prioritized them as to immediacy. So there might be the first priority um, they might have the steamship and Easy Street and the, the low-lying areas that are flooding most right now, Ames Bridge and Matiquet, uh, Sackage Pond, uh, Folgers Marsh, uh, the, uh, the culverts uh, by the Life Saving Museum. So those were already issues where we had experienced flooding, where we might have had access to people's homes um, that was already limited. And uh, then we've got longer-term uh, threats that had been identified in the Coastal Resilience Plan, such as um, maybe the, the, the disappearance of uh, CO2 and Great Point, or um, that, that barrier uh, might, might move. Um, so those are some of the longer-term scenarios that the, ha that the Coastal Resilience Plan addresses. But those are um, those are not top one priorities. So those are those are things that we might um, need to address in forty or fifty years. But they're still um, in the plan. Uh, they're just not top one priorities. Now you mentioned Umbrella Group. I assume you're referring to yourselves, Acclimate, as the Umbrella Group of all these different groups and organizations that in one way or another are affected or, or stakeholders, however you want to put it, uh, whether it's you know, the Natural Resource Department on, in the town of Nantucket or any, any one of a number of nonprofits who have uh, either ownership of coastal land or interest in the preservation or protection of, of land. So you're... Um, in a way, you're the hub around which a lot of things are moving, or you're the liaison among all of these other groups we, in, in addressing what's going on with you know whatever it happens to be. Uh, Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, we are. We are. I think one of one of several hubs. It's maybe more like a car where you'd have several wheels okay. turning in in unison. Um, I, I think of uh, some of the collaborations that existed before us, like the uh, Nantucket Biodiversity Initiative, and some that have come after Acclimate, like uh, the Clean Water Coalition. Um, there, there are a lot of the partners uh, that might be members or uh, collaborators in all three of those partnerships. I know Mariah Mitchell is a lead for um, all three organizations, so they're kind of a perfect example of what uh, one of the, you know I guess the uh, the frame of that body might might look like. But uh, uh, we we do try to act in concert with these other organizations. Uh, our focus is primarily on coastal resilience. Um, there's definitely some overlap. Uh, we are making every effort to support the Clean Water Coalition. Um, a lot of our partners, of Acclimates partners are also uh, Clean Water Coalition partners. Um, but there are, our separate missions do differ a little bit. Uh, so they are focused specifically on the health of the, our water, uh, the health of the harbor, uh, our drinking water, uh, whereas Acclimate might have a, you know, a larger uh, coastal resilience uh, uh, focus, which might include access to clean drinking water, but it also includes uh, preparedness for storm surges. Well, everything is 
interlinked with everything else. Yes. And it's, if, if there's a problem in one area, it's going to pop up in another area. And um, you have to look at these things. Well, as the word you use in the mission statement, holistically, you can't isolate one thing and just talk about that because then you're ignoring a whole bunch of other things that are going on at the same time. And because we're an island, and not a very big one, it's what, 52 square miles or, or whatever it is, um, and climate change affects everything worldwide. But if you're on an island, you've got not just the possibility of more frequent hurricanes and stronger hurricanes or... Uh, Right now in Florida, as we're speaking, they're having, uh, they've just had a, a late season hurricane. Mm -hmm. uh, today is November 10th, I guess, and they just had a hurricane hit Vero Beach. That's very late for, for a hurricane. But on Nantucket, we've always had erosion. You know, this goes back thousands and thousands of years. But with uh, climate change, seas rising faster and faster, uh, it's not the same as climate change affecting Minnesota or Central Asia or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, I mean, there are places, I'm, I'm sure you've got plenty of places in your head too, uh, places where I used to see a rock on the beach when I was a little boy. Mm -hmm. Well, now the rock is a few feet out in Nantucket Sound or in the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. I mean, you, you can, even in my short, comparatively short time on, on the planet, I can see the results of rising seas, and it's you know it's only getting worse. Uh, you bring up you know f uh, flooding on Easy Street it doesn't happen just in storms anymore. Um, let's key in on a couple of things. First of all, uh, tell us who some of your collaborative partners are. Uh, right now, you, you've mentioned a couple, but mention a few more. Sure. So um, our administrative partner right now is the Mariah Mitchell Association. Uh, they, they essentially are our staff also work for Mariah Mitchell. Uh, our previous coordinator worked also for the Lisa, the Craig Group, uh, headed by Lisa Craig, as well as the Preservation Institute of Nantucket. Um, our um, relationship with the town is through Mary Longacre, who's the, the chair of the uh, Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee. Um, we've worked with uh, Remain on a number of issues. Uh, uh, Egan Maritime is not a partner, but we've worked with them on some of the education spokes, which I think we're going to talk about later. Yes. Um, our newest partners are uh, the Nantucket Historical Association and the Shellfish Association. Um, so when we talk about coastal resilience on Nantucket, it's, it's, I, I don't only think that it's looking towards our future resilience. Uh, most of our guidance, I think, can come from what we've already done. You know, we're an incredibly resilient community. Uh, you know, when, when the town of Sherburn essentially lost their harbor, they moved all those buildings and moved to what we know as the town of Nantucket now. And that harbor ended up closing up a little bit too. And then, um, you know, then we started using camels to get these, these uh, oil-laden whale ships over the shoals into the Nantucket Harbor. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a role for a lot of the nonprofits on, on Nantucket. Um, we've, we've got some projects, I think, in the works that will allow for greater collaboration because resilience on Nantucket is not only about where we are now and what threats are, um, we're dealing with now, but also how we've dealt with them in the past and then what these future projections might look like. 
Um, the sea level rise projections that have been provided by FEMA and NOAA um, vary greatly. I mean, it could be anywhere from uh, four to, to 10 feet uh, by the end of the century. Uh, the town's using an intermediary high um, scenario, which I think was just lowered to about six and a half feet. And that's, it, I think it's very prudent of the town to, to kind of take a hope for the best, but expect the worst, because when we're raising bridges and moving roads and culverts, it's, it's, I think it's pretty prudent to, 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 to add that extra foot of preparation when it comes to sea level rise, because the storm surge might, might then account for another a foot of, of, of rise. Well, it's, 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 even in this small community, it's, it's a complicated problem because you mentioned uh, the Ames Street Bridge out by where Matica Miller mm -hmm. used to live. That area is eroding from Matica Beach going, what, northeastward or whatever. Um, there, there are certain things that are going to have to be done because the town owns the street, but it doesn't own the land on either side of the street. And as the water, or as the beach erodes on one side, it accretes on the other. So there may be a time, not in my lifetime, but probably in yours, where that bridge is going to be going over sand. But in any case, in any case the prospect is there that someday that will be an island on the other side of that bridge. And if you have land out there, and there are quite a few houses still there, how do you get back and forth between the mainland, if you will, and where your house is? And whose responsibility is that and, and who is going to pay for it? Um, but let me go back to some of the things you were talking about a minute ago. Um, why don't you choose a specific spot on the island? Um, much as what I just did, but you, you'll have much more knowledge at your fingertips. Pick another part of the island uh, to illustrate some of the things you've been talking about. Um, an exact place and what the problems are and who is doing what to address those problems. So whatever, whatever place you want to pick. Well, I think uh, uh, we're, we're just beginning to embark on a coastal resilience walk that will pretty much uh, start at Brant Point and end at the creeks. And over the course of the walk, you would walk by some of the most at-risk mm -hmm. sites that have been identified in the coastal resilience plan. So starting at Brant Point, I think, uh, is interesting because it's all fill. Um, the, you know, the lighthouse that was out at Brant Point was originally accessed by a walkway. Mm -hmm. And uh, slowly we started dredging the canal and placing what was really, really heavy sediment at Brant Point. So, so that area is pretty well um, solidified and, and safe from, some, from storms. And but it also goes down to Holbert Avenue, if, if I'm correct. That whole area is fill. It's, there's a lot of fill, and then on uh, on Easton, uh, yeah. there there, I mean, there's still wetland that's owned by the Conservation Foundation, yes. and we've got quite a few houses, maybe maybe five or six houses that have sold in the last couple of years, and these are ten, twelve, fifteen million dollar homes that that are still being not only purchased for those prices, but renovated and rebuilt at huge expense, and hopefully raised up. We, 
Well, that's what we're saying. That we're, we're, we're saying that uh, in those coastal areas, uh, homes are being uh, raised so that floodwaters could essentially flow right under the homes. They, they'd mm -hmm. have breakaway foundations that um, wouldn't resist the water like a typical foundation. Um, well, there's some houses on Holbrook Avenue that have been that way for generations, but there are an awful lot that aren't that way. Uh, and again, who's going to do it? Who's going to pay for it? But continue with your walk. Well, uh, so you had mentioned uh, Madigan in particular, and one of the issues is when do we start talking about retreat and relocation? Um, so if these houses are only accessible by boat, uh, it might be fine for some owner, homeowners to only have uh, uh, a, you know, privately accessible launch and a dock if, if wetland regulations allow for that. Um, but I think this, the town is still required to provide emergency access mm -hmm. vehicles. Um, they'll need to rescue those people if there's a fire or a medical emergency, if there's um, a call for the police. Um, so there's got to be a careful balance, I think, between what the property owners want to do, and that might be to stay entrenched and not move no matter what the waves are doing. Um, but then the town has a responsibility to provide those emergency services, and if they can't reach people, they're not going to be able to provide those services. Or if they do, it's going to be by boat at huge expense. Um, so at some point in time, we're, we're going to have to talk about you know, making really difficult decisions, and that's when does our island start getting smaller as, as seas rise. Well, getting smaller is, it brings up an interesting point because the island in general is growing smaller, but if you zero in on a couple of spots, um, it's building up. It now, is. The end of Halbert Avenue by the last public way uh, on Charles Street that's building up, as is the Jetties Beach area. And if you go to Codfish Park, that eroded almost all the way to the road about 30 years ago. It didn't quite get to the road, but came within inches. But now it's building up again. Well, I remember seeing houses <laughs> in Codfish Park go over into the, into the yes. water when I was a kid. Yeah. And, and you're right, there is accretion. The, the problem in is... General, there's, there's some, but in general, there's not. Well, so we are gaining our, we are gaining some real estate, and yep. that real estate is in the form of sand. The problem yes. with sand is it blows away. It gets yep. washed away. It yep. erodes. Uh, what we're losing is that heavily vegetated areas that are held in place by, um, you know, thickets of vegetation that have been growing for, for you know, for a very long time, mm -hmm. and being replaced with this with the sandy sediment that that moves a lot, um, so we might we might be gaining real estate in Eel Point, and uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, somewhere along the South Shore we might be losing some, and uh, likewise uh, at Great Point uh, it might sweep around the point and uh, start accreting on the north side of Co Two. Um, the issue, I think, with, with that is it's, it's not perfectly balanced. We're replacing mm -hmm. what might be a vegetative barrier with a sandy one that, that might not have the same sort of resilience. And you've brought up CO2 a couple of times, and one of the concerns about CO2 is if the seas rise too high and the storms get too strong, it is perfectly conceivable to lose CO2 which in and of itself would be a shame. It's a beautiful area. But it would also do something else. It would expose 
um, parts of Walwinet and Shakamo and Shimo and Polpis and Pakama to Nantucket Sand. That's miles and miles and miles of what's now land facing Nantucket Harbor, but could potentially be facing uh, some pretty wild seas. It's, it's, it's on my mind right now. The Trustees Reservation and the Conservation Foundation just presented their report on this, the state of KOTU and Cascada. Um, so they've been doing um, some elevation analysis that uh, have revealed some weak spots. Uh, it kind of be the usual suspects at the, you know, the haul over, uh, I think right off second point. Um, and that they, they did recognize the risk to what's essentially the, the harbor of Nantucket um, should uh, KOTU move so drastically or um, if, if we got the breaches, and we've had breaches in the past, but if yeah. we got breaches that um, went over more of, more of KOTU and if, if the storm surges were significant enough, um, it could have a huge impact on a lot of the, the, the area that's right now protected by this uh, really unique formation. I think the cuspate spits that make up KOTU are internationally rare. I mean, it's, it, we're very fortunate it's, to have that feature here. It is unusual, and you know, you know, washing over, um, it's about 30 years ago, you might remember this, when um, might have been the no-name storm, it flooded the Gauls, the area north of Cascada, mm -hmm. but south of Great Point, and it stayed that way for a few months. Um, it eventually, the sand did move around, it reconnected the Great Point area to the rest of Nantucket, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they built up the Gauls. They took out Christmas trees or whatever, and they allowed sand to build up there. So the likelihood of a, another um, washover at the Gauls has been greatly reduced. But can that be a template for the rest of the island? Maybe not. I, th I think the Gauls were one of the four areas that they were studying to be most, most vulnerable to breach. Um, so I, I, they, it, it might be five feet high, but in a severe storm, that, that still might be at risk. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they have looked at uh, some sediment transport analysis and figuring out how, how much it would cost to replenish some of the sands that might be swept away there. And I'm forgetting the exact figure, but it was you know a million dollars of sand might might last two or three years. Um, it would protect the harbor in that time, but it it brings up the question, and we're dealing with it with the geotubes and, and off Baxter Road, is where are we going to get all the sand? And instead of looking at individual projects, we might think about if we want to protect our entire coastline, I think we've got 80 miles of it, maybe. I, I've heard 89. 89. Yeah. So that's a lot of sand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was uh, there was a Dutch project that um, had essentially uh, relocated. I think it was called the Sand Monster, and they just they just pumped tons of sand and let uh, let the tides bring it wherever it was going to go. Mm -hmm. And they they kind of studied the the movement of the sand, but also um, some of the problems that we have here is that. Uh, whatever we do, it's going to cause a lot of disruption to the shoals that have been mm -hmm. in place and um, may have really long-lasting repercussions if we were to remove something that, without our knowing, might actually be a protective barrier. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a perfect example of what I, what I mentioned a while ago. You do one thing, but you're affecting five other things. I mean, some people would say, well, okay, that's great, but what kind of sand are you going to use? Is that sand compatible with what's already there? Uh, and what difference does that make anyway? And you're going to get five different answers from five different people. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a case of we'll do this and that'll solve it. It's, well, no, wait a minute. Um, which is one reason why Acclimate is involved with so many other groups that specialize in one thing or another, because it is, a, even in a small town, this is a very complicated problem. And, and we're very fortunate that we have as many nonprofits as we do, and they've got incredible staffs. I mean, there aren't a lot of communities that have the resources that Nantucket does. Um, so in, the, in yes. the grand scheme of things, <laughs> when we're talking about climate change and coastal resilience, we are very fortunate. Not only do we have a history of being resilient, but we have organizations that are confronting these issues. And in the, in the long run, the strategies that we develop here are going to have applications elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they can use uh, our success as well as our failure as a template for how they confront some of the issues that, that global, the global community is going to have to confront. I think we've got nearly half the world's population lives within 100 miles of the coastline. Um, so, so when we're talking yeah. about the, you know, the bigger picture, the things that we're doing here do have applicability elsewhere. Um, so I, I, I think it's really important, a lot of the work that we're doing here. Um, but it's also very promising. Um, well, the, living near the coast, I mean, I, I've read that if you go back, I don't know, two or three hundred years, nobody wanted to live on the coast anywhere. And, and not just in the United States, but the coast was considered unhealthy. Um, never mind the fact that it would be changing all the time, but people just didn't want to live on the coast. They wanted to live inland. Well, now, um, some, sometimes for reasons that are beyond human control, but sometimes well within human control, as is happening here. Nobody has a gun to his head and having to live on the coast. But living on the coast is a very popular thing in the United States, whether it's here or in North Carolina or in you know, California, whatever it happens to be. There's been a change in the mindset of 21st century people as to where they want to live and what they're willing to do to, to be able to do that living. Uh, can you change that mindset? Can you convince people that even though it's really nice, maybe it's not the best idea if you're going to be living in this particular location? Uh, I don't have an answer to that. I'm just throwing the question out and saying it's, it's something that's different from years past. There, there are coastal resilience proponents that uh, have, have studied hurricanes over the last 50, 100 years, and uh, they found that the, you know, the, the damage that's been increasing is not due to the severity necessarily of the storms, or in, 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 it, it might have to do with the, the number of people that now are living closer and closer to the coast. Yes, um, Even absolutely. in Nantucket, people mm -hmm. might have had fishing shacks out at Codfish Park, yep. but they were commuting back to town every, every other week. Yep. Um, yep. So uh, that, might, that might contribute to the problem, but the fact is that we've, we've now made that fundamental shift towards the coast, and there are a lot of communities, uh, particularly in Asia, that are built around the resources that are there. They might have abundant mm -hmm. sources of food yep. um, through the fisheries. 
Um, so so their you know their their reason to live on the coast might not be for aesthetic reasons or for fresh air. Mm -hmm. um, it, it might be their livelihoods depend on being close or on living on the water. It's some, that's right. Some people do live on the water, but yeah, for some people it is a necessity. Uh, it, it's not for us. It's a luxury. For a lot of people in the world, it, it is a necessity. I mentioned uh, spoke groups earlier in the show, and I, I want to talk about your STEM education, your ambassadors program, et cetera. So our, our spoke groups are essentially uh, committees. Uh, it's, it's another word for committees. It's maybe a nautical um, reference. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea with Acclimate overall is that it's a roundtable collaborative. Uh, there's, there's no formal governing structure. We don't have a president, vice president, secretary, treasurer. We're not a 501c3 with a 990 accounting system. So, we are, so you're not a corporation? We are, we are not. We are unincorporated. So, but your title is chair. It is. Um, uh, but it, I, I don't think it's a... Not in the same sense as the chair of a board of directors of a 501c3. It's not. Okay. Um, and and okay. That, was, that was decided before I joined the group, and that was so that uh, there wouldn't be any impediment to joining, that, uh, mm -hmm. that any... any on-island nonprofit or uh, uh, town organization that wanted to get involved would be able to, to essentially step foot in the door and have an equal opportunity to demonstrate their leadership or um, to identify an issue area that, uh, that they might be able to use their own resources and expertise and collaborate with, uh, with partners without necessarily the impediment of having to go through a formal committee structure. So, so in a way, Acclimate is it's consultancy taken to a much higher level. Is that a way of describing I, you it? You know, chair might be too fancy of a term for, for what I'm doing. Really, mm -hmm. because we don't have a governing structure, I'm not, uh, I'm not issuing directives. Uh, I'm, I'm an administrative assistant to our mm -hmm. organizations. Um, so the Acclimate staff works to assist the collaboration and further communication between our partners, um, but not necessarily to, uh, to have an agenda item that partners mm -hmm. necessarily have to follow. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of what differenti differentiates us from a lot of the nonprofits that might have a, um, a IRS regulations governing how they operate. So we're, we're kind of free from that structure. Do you raise money for Acclimate? No. And, and again, that was very intentional so that um, we're not competing for donor dollars with any of mm -hmm. our partners. So our partners don't have to go back to their boards and say, why are we compromising or potentially compromising uh, donations to our organizations if we're part of another umbrella organization that might be doing similar work? So does... Um does acclimate, well, does it spend any money? We do. So we've got, um, we've got the Osceola Foundation is, is the, um, the convening partner that's right now providing uh, funding through the Mariah Mitchell Association as the administrative partner at the moment. Uh, and then uh, the expenses uh, are also shared um, by the Osceola Foundation at the moment. So if someone... Um, I don't mean to get hung up on this one point. Sure. If somebody wants to support Acclimate, 
would they write a check or would, is that just not necessary? I, if they want to support Acclimate, they, they could support any one of our partners. It, if they wanted to write a check, I think most of our partners, with the exception of the Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee, mm -hmm. would gladly cash it. So it, it wouldn't go to Acclimate? No. It would go to you know, whoever, you know, Mariah Mitchell, whoever it would happen to be? Yes. Okay. Um, ambassadors program. Uh, the ambassadors program is uh, it's an opportunity for any one individual that might not be associated with a nonprofit or a um, uh, a town committee to get involved with 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 acclimate. Um, if you have uh, computer expertise, if you know how to embed Google Maps onto Squarespace, um, maybe you've uh, you've got a shop and you want to distribute uh, literature. Um, that would be an opportunity for an ambassador uh, to take a leadership role in coastal resilience without necessarily having to have an affiliation with the nonprofit. Let's go back to zeroing in on a particular thing. Um, and I'm thinking of the Hummock Pond area. And until the 60s or 70s, Hummock Pond was kind of a U-shaped pond, and mm -hmm. the bottom of the U was next to Cisco Beach. As there was a, more and more erosion where the bottom of the U is, uh, the sand accreted to the point where it split into two ponds. So there's now Hummock Pond, and there's uh, on the east, and the, the west there's what's called Clark's Cove. At the same time, particularly in Hummock Pond, but in other parts of the island as well, you have Phragmites covering acres and acres and acres. Mm -hmm. um, there is an effort being made right now to get rid of Phragmites in some areas of the island. Uh, there are also efforts to dredge some of the ponds so that the ponds are healthier. That's not directly a matter of erosion and rising seas but it sure is involved with erosion and rising seas. How does Acclimate address that, or, or do they? Uh, so I, I do believe uh, both Phragmites and harmful algae blooms to be climate change issues. Um, they are, um, the Phragmites in particular, might grow better in warmer conditions and areas that have been disturbed where humans have uh, removed uh, some of the, the native species to make way for the Phragmites. And there, there are native Phragmites as well, so it's, that, mm. that conversation is a little nuanced. Uh, so far as the harmful algae blooms and dredging um, Hummock Pond and, and some of our kettle ponds, they're primarily being dredged because the fertilizers that have trickled yep. down into them for probably decades now and have accumulated to the point that they're they're blooming essentially toxic fumes um, when when they reach a certain uh, uh, ratio of uh, um, our uh, acclimates focus um, right now is going to be through supporting the Clean Water Coalition. Um, so their attempts to limit uh, the over fertilization of uh, landscaped uh, areas, as well as prevent storm waters and waste waters from entering both the kettle ponds as well as our harbor. Um, so Acclimate uh, 
is again in partnership with a lot of the organizations that are involved with the Clean Water Coalition. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of action from the Clean Water Coalition in the next year. Uh, they've already started to work with the town. I'm really hopeful that those efforts are successful. In addition to working with the various groups you've mentioned, are you involved in education of the public, any kind of public outreach to what you're all doing? We had a number of uh, also spoke meetings. Uh, we had an education spoke uh, that um, might have met uh, half a dozen times. Uh, it was uh, with it was in concert with Dr. Bardsley, who's the STEM coordinator for the public school, um, and we had invited uh, the new school or representatives from the new school, uh, Lighthouse, uh, Egan Maritime, who has uh, right now the the public school does have something like a vocational education program for maritime and uh, medical education. And there's, there, I think there's a real desire to have environmental education uh, as a third component to that vocational training. And we think about uh, the industry that's being opened up by renewable energies and maintenance of solar cells and, and uh, when we think about uh, engineering for sea level rise, um, even on Nantucket, the Coastal Resilience Plan uh, estimates were, I think, close to a billion dollars. Oh, wow. Um, and that might be over 80 years, so it's not, we're not going to get a big a bill for a billion, but. Um, it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so it, it would be ideal if we had Nantucketers that are being educated through the public school system mm -hmm. that are really knowledgeable about the issues that we're going to be confronting. I wish they're going to be confronting. Yes, uh, yes, more so than, than us, perhaps. Yes. Uh, before we go, t tell us something about what you did before you uh, chair, began to chair Acclimate. Uh, well, my, my interest in, in environmentalism began in college, um, probably maybe even before that, but my first job out of college was for Senator John Chafee, who at the time was the chair of the Environmental Public Works Committee for the Senate. Uh, he was uh, one of the champions of the uh, CERCLA, Superfund, uh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. Um, so I was, I, I think, very blessed to, um, to, to start my career with a, a real environmental advocate and icon. And as uh, uh, he passed away well in office, and I, I stayed on with his son Lincoln throughout his Senate career, um, he later became governor of Rhode Island, and I worked uh, with, with and for him throughout his gubernatorial term and campaign. Um, and he was also, like his father, an environmental advocate. So um, I, when I returned to Nantucket, and this was uh, at the start of COVID, um, yeah, acclimate, <laughs> acclimate was just getting started. We were, we were one year in, and uh, they... Uh, they were looking for people like the ambassador program to, um, that were willing to volunteer. I'm not. I'm not paid. I'm. I'm a volunteer for the organization. It's just something I believe in, um, and I, I. I realize that there's. Uh, we've. We've covered a lot of the kind of the doom and gloom, but uh, really, what keeps me interested and ticking and motivating, motivated is that there's a lot of promise. Um, you know, for for all of the destruction that some of our fossil fuel burning may have caused. There's so much promise when it comes to alternative energies and um, the coastal resilience that we've already demonstrated that we can 
Um, we can take these lessons and we can build back better. They're, 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 you know, we can we can use this crisis as an opportunity to make um, to make our our lives here better for ourselves as well as the future. And I think that's really what's exciting about coastal resilience on Nantucket. One thing you did after you worked for the Chafees and before you came to Nantucket was to take an overland trip across Asia. Uh, now you weren't near the ocean during that trip, but um, briefly tell us where you started, where you ended, and what you saw. Did that inform your thinking at all in any way, even though you were not near a coast? It, it did. I, so that particular trip was the most of the Silk Route I did in, in two phases. One was Venice to Istanbul, and the second was uh, Beijing to Istanbul. Um, both both overland with the exception of the Caspian Sea, which um, had some trouble getting into Iran. So, um, otherwise, it was uh, it was a, a slow slow journey across the continent. And um, there, there definitely uh, we were um, kind of snaking between the Gobi and Taklamakan deserts in China. So these are incredibly um, severe, extreme. Uh, Areas uh, that are, you know, constantly in drought situations, and then we've between China and India, we've got a quarter of the world's population that's essentially reliant on the water coming down from the Himalayas. So even though it it might be, you know, very far from the ocean, uh, the effects of climate change are still felt in these areas where their glaciers are disappearing and their rivers are drying up, and we're starting to see countries uh, fighting over water and other natural resources. Um, and certainly in Asia, we're, we're seeing some of these situations now really play out in the most disastrous ways possible. Before we go, if someone wants to find out more about Acclimate or if they want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, the best way is through our website. Uh, it's acclimate.org. And mm -hmm. uh, my contact information is on there, as well as our coordinator, Izzy Gaw, and uh, Ava Rollins handles our social media, so she's also available. Um, her email's on that website. Will Kinsella, thank you for coming in today. This has uh, been more than informative. It's just the, the tip of the tip of the iceberg for what's going on here. And I'm glad you came in and told us about Acclimate. Well, thank you, Charlie. I'm so grateful that you asked me here, and I am happy to share more information whenever you'd like. Great. I will keep that in mind. For Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, I'm Charlie Walters. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me again.